0: Good day once again and welcome back to the podcast. In our time travel adventure, today is Sunday, 13th of October, 1946. Just a short letter today, handwritten rather than typed, from Bette to her mum. As you'll find, she's in a particularly buoyant and joyful mood. Has something to do with the fact that Hank's back. Before we hear from Bette, though, here's a little more from the story of UNRWA. Chapter 23 Displaced Persons in Germany In Germany, UNRWA's spearhead teams and flying squads were at work even before VE Day, assisting the Allied military authorities with the millions of men, women and children who were trudging up and down highways and byways or crushed into assembly centres and transit camps. There was almost no limit to the duties or the endurance of these early teams. They directed the universal dusting with DDT powder, which the displaced persons called their sleeping powder because it gave them uninterrupted rest, presided at births and deaths and marriages, and comforted and cheered in many languages. With the dissolution of chafe, Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, and the increase in UNRWA personnel, UNRWA and the military authorities negotiated agreements for the French, British and US zones of Germany, under which UNRWA gradually took over the internal management of the assembly centres and camps, while the military authorities continued to be responsible for furnishing shelter, food and other basic supplies. In addition, the agreement staked out Unra's other responsibilities. To coordinate and supervise the work of the voluntary agencies among the DPs, and very extensive and important work it was. To operate a central tracing bureau to reunite scattered families. To provide amenity supplies such as cigarettes, toilet articles and recreation equipment. And finally, to cooperate with the military and government authorities in arranging repatriation of the DPs, including their reception in their home countries. The assembly centres and camps in which Unra took on this large assignment varied in character and in population. Shelter and sanitation ranged from the primitive to a reasonable degree of comfort, but more often than not, quarters had to be patched up and made livable with little but bare hands and ingenuity. It was necessary to place some DPs immediately in hospitals for treatment for overwork or severe malnourishment. Others had been so driven by their former Nazi employers that for many months work was a humiliation rather than a normal activity in which they were anxious to join. To thousands, however, liberation was a spur to action. Once an assembly centre was habitable, UNRA concentrated on making it a go and concern with everybody given a part. Camp committees were initiated for general and specific activities, all subject to the advice and control of the UNRA team in charge. Camp newspapers, canteens, boy and girl scout groups and orchestras and dramatic shows soon cropped up. Almost every centre had its sewing rooms and its machine and carpentry and woodworking and cobbler's shops where clothing and other useful objects were made from German uniforms, from unravelled rope, from former Nazi flags, from pieces of parachute and airplane fabrics and other scrounged materials. One centre built up a complete boot shop and another a soap factory. Aside from producing badly needed goods, these shops gave vocational training to many people. Later, through an overall employment program inaugurated by Unra in 1946, many DPs awaiting repatriation were placed in jobs approved by the military authorities outside of the camps. Meanwhile, Unra and voluntary agency technicians provided the camps with many of the services of a well-run community. Clinics and day nurseries were established, Nutritionists advised on the best use of the food supplies. Some people had dental care for the first time in their lives. Serious epidemics were caught before they got a head start. And, as a result, the general standards of health among the DPs remained remarkably good. We'll resume the story of Unra in further episodes. But now, let's find out why Bet's so chirpy.
1: Mrs. Betty Souter, UNRWA Regional Office, Nanchang, Changxi, si, 13th of October, 1946. My dearest mother, today is a perfectly lovely day. Clear blue sky, sunshine, cool weather. I believe now that it was well worth putting up with the summer for days like this one. And being Sunday, we can enjoy it. Yes, Hank is back and that makes me twice as happy as I would otherwise be. He had to talk hard, I think, but here he is. Even though it might only be for a couple of weeks, he says he'll be with me at Christmas time too, wherever I might be. So that will be the best possible Christmas I can have in China. I'm assuming I'll still be in China, though anything can happen in Unra. I have not written any letters these last few days, not since Hank walked into the office on Wednesday afternoon. Although I was expecting and waiting for him, I did get a surprise. I offered to help get his gear from the truck and when I went out with him, discovered he had a load of 10 orphans. As I had very recently visited the orphanage, I was able to show him the way and helped him deliver his strange cargo. They were Chang's children who were evacuated to Shanghai while the fighting was progressing here. And now they are being brought back to their native province. Poor little souls. The youngest was only four. The oldest looked about eight or nine. They were stuck in Quchang, so Hank offered to drive them here, together with the U.S. missionary in charge of them. I was really pleased to see my man again and he apparently is keener than ever about seeing me. He's referred to as a case and shadows me around while I'm not shadowing him. Quite a stir here when we evacuated Mona Callister, who had had some unknown fever for nearly three weeks. We radioed for a plane to take her to hospital in Shanghai and it duly arrived a couple of days ago and took her off. She's pretty sick, though not acutely so. We've been concerned because the doctors were unable to decide what the trouble was. That's the worst worry of ailments in this dirty and diseased country. But we should not worry because we are well looked after and I noticed Mona brighten considerably when told that her plane was waiting. I gave Dosh's Christmas parcel to a Shanghai-bound traveller yesterday and so it will be posted in about seven days' time. I've written to Dad about it. I'm giving juice to Marge Block to take to Hong Kong next week, where she will post it for me. I'll send it care of 34 Hunter Street too. Marge is taking some of her leave now and travelling overland with Keith, who has to go down officially. Should be a good trip for Marge. She needs a break too. I'm always reaching the end of these two pages before I want. I must find room, though, to tell you that I'm extra well and very happy. I don't need anything here, and I'm beginning to grow impatient for my return journey. Oceans of love, dear Mimi. From your boo-boo. Kiss, 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 kiss. Production credits
0: for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter, by Helen Polkinghorn, and the featured tune This episode from nineteen forty six, a number one bestseller and song hits magazine Record of the Month, Surrender, written by Benny Benjamin and George Weiss, performed by Perry Como with the Russ Case and his orchestra.
2: you surrender How long can your lips live without a kiss Surrender I beg you surrender How long Oh, be untrue, so please be tender, and darling surrender, and love me as I